This thing on? It's recording. We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation upon whose ancestral lands our city campus now stands. We would also like to pay respect to elders both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for this land. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 6 of The Bar. It's lovely to have you back, dear listeners. I'm Perina. And I'm Brayden. We have lots of exciting stuff for you in store again this episode. I think we say that every week, don't we? But we don't lie. We (laughs) never disappoint. I don't think I've ever told a lie in my life. (laughs) Neither. At least on the podcast. Yeah, no. We keep it 100% (laughs) truthful here. Authentic, authentic. You know, that's how it is. Look, I think we'll get straight into our weekly specials here. Mm Mm-hmm. How's uh how's your week been doing? So far so boring. Actually, <laughs> like I've just been studying a lot, but thinking back to a couple of days ago, went to the start of semester party. Oh yes. That was amazing. Lots of fun. Saw someone interesting there, my co host. Oh yeah, really? I yeah. also saw my co host. No way, me. Yeah, oh, actually. We uh we took a little vlog at at the bar, actually. We did. Like, actually at the bar. So it was the bar at the bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah look, I very much had a good time at, at Start of Sam. It was good to see it popping off. Not going to lie and pretend that I knew many people there. Neither. Um, I feel like I'm aging up out of these things, but, you know, not going to stop me from going there. That at makes least. me sad, though, because I'm the same age as you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look, we still had a good time. We did have a good time. Yeah, I guess... It was a great event. Yeah, I'm like really, really excited to see that the first years and second years just have so much energy. What's been happening with you, Prina? Um, well, I've been studying, you know, trying to study. Yeah. Like, you know, procrastinating studying. But other than that, I have an engagement coming up in a few weeks. And no, it's not mine. It's someone else's <laughs> engagement that I have to go to. Um, and yeah, it's like an Indian engagement party. So, you know, we get to wear like fun traditional dresses and dress up and look pretty and talk and dance and have fun. You know, things that have been happening in Mm -hmm. my life as well, my weekly specials. So what's been going on? Tell us. Um, the first one was I got my remedies back. So I was talking about this last week. Congratulations. For getting it back. Yeah. (laughs) And for getting a good mark, I'm presuming, because you seem happy about it. Yeah. Well, look, to be fair, if I didn't get a good mark, I probably wouldn't have ever brought it up. Exactly. (laughs) But yes, I am happy with my mark for that one. It was only the minor research. Um, assignments so still lots to do for the rest of that subject but I really do like remedies as I was saying last week so I won't repeat myself again as to why <laughs> um, I love remedies so much but in other news it was actually recently my dad's birthday Ooh. and we went out to a um, Chinese restaurant it's called um, New Shanghai it's in Ashfield mm-hmm. um, if there's any, any inner westies tuning into this podcast and you know the place you're also you also have great taste mm-hmm. um, get that but... succulent Chinese meal <laughs> let's go <laughs> yes yes exactly and it was succulent uh, I had the classic pork and chive dumplings because I'm nice. basic <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think what was really good with that was my family now like we're, we're all like all the kids are out of high school um, and we're all working slash studying. So I'm actually the only one who's at uni. My brother is an apprentice, um, so he works for four days and is at TAFE for the fifth day. Um, my sister works full-time mm-hmm. um, for ch- well for Nine Honey. Uh, and yeah. then, you know, my mum's teacher, dad, uh, you know, uh, is a consultant. And so we're all super busy. Um, yeah. But, you know, obviously I know when my dad's birthday is, I've got the recurring calendar entry in my <laughs> iCal. And so I booked this out, like, I'm not going to put any plans on that day because it's his birthday. Yeah. And it's just really nice to go out and have, you know, like a nice dinner out just with your family when you don't see them a whole lot, even though you live all in the same house. Yeah. And of course, my nan, um, my dad's mom also made an appearance and she's excellent value. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. She's the last grandparent of mine still kicking. Um, I love that. (laughs) And she makes up for all of them. So, so good. Um, Shout know, out to Brayden's grandma. Yeah, her name's Maureen. Shout out to Maureen. Yeah, and uh, if any, <laughs> if anyone on, anyone listening to this actually follows my Instagram, um, she loves to come in three, four days after I've posted and just comment a single heart emoji. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, I mean, she's Instagram as well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she's such a cool man. What? I don't think she posts much though. 
No, but uh, even though, like, she still has Instagram. I mean, yeah. She also has, like, Facebook. Um, I think she had Snapchat temporarily. I don't know why. Snapchat. Um, but the thing is, my nan's, <laughs> my nan's Facebook gets hacked every other week. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, once you change the password, you set up two-factor authentication. Yeah. How do you get hacked? Like, I don't know. And it's got to be clicking links like that, that she's been sent on Messenger, yeah. like the the spam links, and it's funny because like you and me, for example, could yeah. easily spot like a scam from a mile. We would off. know that a Nigerian prince doesn't want our money. Yeah, he doesn't want to give us money. But. Yeah, and this random person I've never met wants to give me an iPhone 13. Like I just people aren't that nice. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if I had an iPhone 13 and I, you know, had was could get rid of it. Yeah. I don't think I'd give it to a random person on the no, internet that exactly. I don't know. Exactly. So, yeah, look, interesting <laughs> interesting uh, weekly specials for me this week, Definitely. but um, certainly been good. I also did spend the weekend uh, indoors studying, mm-hmm. catching up. So, Perina, before we get um, our exciting guest on today's episode, mm-hmm. I would love to hear your legal scoop for this week. Okay, so it's nothing too recent or it hasn't been in the news right now, but it's interesting and something that's going to sound almost far-fetched. So I'm sure many of us have heard or are familiar with Justice McTiernan. You might have heard of him if you're doing Consti before, like if you've done it before, if you're doing the SEM, um, because he was one of the presiding judges over the landmark Communist Party case, um, which made it illegal to be a member of the Communist Party in Australia. So, anyways, do you know the story of how his retirement came about? I don't, actually. Okay, so everyone speculated that he'd work as a judge and stay on the job till his death, Um, but his plans were cut short in 1976 when he broke his hip while chasing around a cricket in his hotel room with a rolled-up newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, and he even pleaded to have a ramp installed in the court so he could, like, roll up. Yeah. Um, And that plea got rejected as well. Why didn't they install a ramp? I think it's because um, his brain was sharp. You know, everything yeah. was working, but, like, his voice would get lower and lower, like, when he was, like, passing judgments, and he would take longer to write them as well. So, yeah. like, his brain was kicking on, he was sharp, but he was slowing down, and then this accident came about. And I think it was Justice Gordon, maybe, mm. um, who he pleaded to, um, and he was like, no, mm. you cannot. Like, this is it. You have to retire now. Wow, okay. But yeah, the whole cricket thing. And actually, I learnt this fact while I was in my Consti class. Um, we had a Kahoot going on, and it's not related to anything we're doing at all. It's just, like, fun <laughs> trivia stuff. And this was one of them. And I was like, oh, I got it right. I didn't know what the answer was. I was just like, let me just click the most absurd answer, and this was it. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, with Kahoot's... Generally, when there's an absurd answer... It's usually the right one. Like, it's either it's the right one or mm-hmm. they've cho- like thrown it in as a joke. Yeah, like, either ten people selected or, like, one person. Well, um, earlier today, I actually had a mentee in Remedies, uh, and the question was, what type of defendants are, you know, are these tort fees? Mm-hmm. You know, because there was multiple people... Um, you know, who were liable for the tort. Yeah. And one of the... <laughs> one of the options was, um, like, what type of defendant are they? And the option was, like, a naughty defendant. <laughs> and I was like, that is hilarious. It's not like, wrong. <laughs> okay, are you saying that if someone does a tort, they're automatically naughty? Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Don't put words in my mouth. I'm just... Assuming, which you really shouldn't do. You shouldn't do that. Okay, so think we're talking about trespass to land right now. Okay. In remedies. Oh yeah. And well, so you can if someone, do that. yeah, if someone trespasses onto onto land, yeah. like without knowing they're trespassing, it's still actionable per se. Mm. Would you say they're naughty? No. Ooh. No, no, no. I wouldn't, because it's <laughs> they didn't intend to trespass, did they? I mean... Even though that might not come into play. Like, you yeah. know that they didn't intend to do it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's kind of like a hypothetical because it's like, well, okay, if they knew they were going to be trespassing, would mm. they have still done it at that point in time? Well, Prina, it was lovely catching up on our weekly specials. It was. And I look forward to seeing what's on the menu for next week. Mm-hmm. Um, I do too. But now we get to 
go to the meat of this podcast, and that is our amazing guest. Yeah. So, listeners, we've got another exciting guest for you this week. Um, this guest is actually the treasurer of the Women's Lawyers Association in New South Wales, which is the peak body um, most well-known for representing women in law in New South Wales. Fun fact, they're actually celebrating their 70th anniversary this year, which is exciting, and we get to talk to them about it too. So, apart from being the treasurer, our guest is also a consultant at Chalk and Berent. Her areas of specialisation include working with private clients, businesses, governments and Indigenous organisations in areas such as public and commercial law. Please welcome Louise Mellon. Hello Louise, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks Perino. Hi Braden, really well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being here. We can't wait to get stuck into the content for today. Mm, I'm very excited. Love to hear about your experience (laughs) in law. Definitely. Um, Well, we'll start off with the most important question that we ask every guest, and that is, who would you take to the bar and why? Well, look, it's not the bar as in the Manning Bar that I used to know when I was at another university studying law, but more (laughs) in relation to the actual bar bar, uh, the bar where barristers hang out. (laughs) So, look, I think that I would uh, take my daughter, who is in fact a lawyer, and um, she's a solicitor. And my husband's also a lawyer and he feels that she would make an excellent uh, president of the Court of Appeal. She's a very Mm. junior lawyer, but uh, to do that, she might first go to the bar, she'd be great. So I'm not sure if she will ever go to the bar, but I think she'd be great. So that's who I would say, my daughter. That's a very good answer, yeah, yeah. And it's really cool that like you're a family of lawyers, which I find really interesting. Uh, it's interesting because our 16-year-old son doesn't think so. He thinks there are enough <laughs> lawyers in the world. Um, and uh, <laughs> and my, our middle child, she's a graduate of UTS. She studied communications in digital and social media. So, yeah, we're not... Wow. My husband does come from a family of lawyers, a few generations, uh, and not so much on my side. Uh, I do... I come, have a very big family and my eldest sister studied law she doesn't practice as a lawyer but um from my siblings point of view we do all sorts of things and my sister my oldest sister who studied law she was the first uh in my family on either side of the family to actually go to university so yeah there's not there's not really the generations there very different actually to some of the people i went to uni with who who did come from generations Mm. of lawyers lawyers, so mm. yeah it's really interesting well, I think I'm the first person in my family to study law. I think me too. Yeah, like yeah. the first person to be studying law. I haven't started practicing yet. Of course. But when we do, I think we'll be the first to practice law as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah, my my family is definitely more of a mixed bag of professions. I would yeah. say my uh, my mom's a teacher, my dad's a consultant, uh, my brother's a tradie. And mm-hmm. my sister also graduated from UTS doing communications, although majored in journalism. Um, so, nice. so it's a, it's a, what, what's the, what is it called? A, a party bag of lollies? Yeah. Well, like a mixed bag. Yeah. A mixed bag of like everything. <laughs> got a bit of everything. That's a bit of Boris Gumpish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got that cultural reference. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Because I, I went into dangerous territory there if I mentioned a cultural, <laughs> cultural reference. I'd say the quote old. right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> is that too on the nose? No, no, um, the life is life like a box of chocolates. Yeah. That's, right. yeah. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. But you have to do it with the accent as well. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. That'll just be embarrassing. I think. Yeah. Well, look, uh, good, on, good on you for studying law and for the achievements. It's a big achievement to get into the course in the first place and to get where you are in terms of um, your progression through your law degree and your and your original degree as well, your undergrad degree. And uh, it is, it's a great profession. It's a great qualification. Many people don't, they study law, they don't necessarily want to be lawyers as in solicitors or barristers or, but, but the law degree is extraordinarily useful mm. to them. So it's, it's a career that's uh, it's been very good to me. And well, firstly, thank you for the congratulations. But I, I would actually extend that congratulations to all of our listeners who yeah. typically mm-hmm. are, um, you know, all studying law at UTS. Yeah. I think, you know, it is an achievement. It was one of, um, you know, one of the things I was most proud of when I was younger, when I first got in. 
because um, I didn't actually get in uh, immediately. I went to business first and transferred Neither. into law. <laughs> uh, are we the same person? I think we're the same person. <laughs> anyway. Fellow <laughs> travellers. Yeah, so it's, you know, it, it is nice. And I do very much enjoy the degree uh, and the things that I learn, especially when I can apply it to my actual job. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to where this degree will take me. Um, yeah. But in saying that, what we would love to hear about is, you know, uh, give us an overview of your career and your journey, um, you know, from law school to where you are now. Sure. Well, I have been a lawyer for a very long while, and I won't tell you how long, but I started practicing <laughs> actually when I was 22. And uh, I have worked in private practice, I've worked in corporate practice, uh, back to private practice. So over over a few je- decades of a career, I've tested all sorts of methods of practicing <laughs> law, started at a medium-sized firm, and I was doing insurance-based work. I was also doing some media work, and I stayed there for a few years, and then I moved to a top-tier firm. Uh, as we call them now, I don't think they were called top tier in that at that time. I think that's sort of a nomenclature that's come uh, more recently, <laughs> in the last couple of decades, perhaps. Um, eventually, maybe they'll describe themselves as magic circle, like in London. But in any event, uh, so I moved to a very large firm, and again, I was doing uh, some insurance-based litigation. I was doing media work had some really fascinating cases. And it was there that I actually uh, had my first experience of professional negligence defence actions for doctors Mm. and also for doctors as well. Uh, What we, uh, the um, professional disciplinary side of things and criminal side of things as well. So I did, I did some really fabulous cases at that uh, firm and got some great experience, was extraordinarily busy. And then, uh, but at that stage, and I won't tell you when it was, but I thought to myself, mm, I'm not sure if I will be able to combine working at this level and having a family. So I moved into corporate practice, in-house practice, and I worked for a a medical defence union. And we handled in-house a great deal of uh, hands-on litigation in in civil matters, complaints, uh, disciplinary matters in what was then the medical tribunal, and also criminal matters for doctors and, and some other health professionals as well. So that... Um, had some really, really fascinating cases there. And because we were doing the hands-on litigation, we we had great experience and were very, very busy. We had a very small legal team and we also advised the directors on, on the board of the Defence Union and dealt with, uh, I suppose, some front-end insurance issues as well and coverage issues. Then I, um, I stayed there for quite some time and had my daughters and when my middle child was two I decided to have a little break and I thought I might do something different uh and but I never really did that and then um had another had a few years off and had another baby and then I decided I missed working and really actually the only thing I was good for was being a lawyer (laughs) as well so uh when our youngest was um, just over one, I decided that I would, I needed to get back to it. And so I contacted, uh, there's a little bit more story to this. I was actually at home thinking, oh, how am I going to get back into it? Because it is quite difficult getting back on the horse when you've been off for a while and having the confidence to think, yeah, I can just slip in and practice law again. And many professionals would find that that after a break, it's it's not necessarily easy to have the confidence to go back and think it's all, you know, you're just going to switch on and be the the advisor that you once were before you had that time off for whatever reason, whatever reason you might have off. So I was just at home and listening to the radio and I heard Elizabeth Broderick, who at that time 
was a partner at Black Dawson Waldron. It was before she became Sex Discrimination Commissioner. But she was on a panel and they were talking about uh, uh, flexible work arrangements for mainly mainly women with caring responsibilities, um, but not just women, but but how you know various people workers need flexible work arrangements. But that she was talking about flexible work arrangements at Blake Dawson, and I knew part. I knew I had contacts at Blake Dawson because I had instructed them in my role within. When I was in-house, they would do some external work for them. And uh, I contacted them and I got a job. So mm. there you go. So that's that. And then I worked there. They be then became Ashurst. Many of your listeners may know the various firms around. So Black Dawson went international, went global and changed name to become a name to become Ashurst. So I, I worked at Ashurst and uh, did some really incredible cases there. Uh, there were medical cases that I did, uh, but I also, this is a really great tort case, actually, Braden, if ever you, uh, it's, well, it didn't go to judgment, it settled, but it was a really incredible case that did receive some publicity. It was to do, we acted for the Commonwealth in a class action brought following the, um, the 2007 equine influenza outbreak. Um, and so as a result, I'm a bit of an armchair epidemiologist and I know all about <laughs> the transmission of viruses, uh, particularly the influenza virus, but um, I apply that knowledge to COVID as well. So, so that was a fascinating case. I had, you know, lot, quite a few really, really fascinating cases. So uh, I moved on and tried something else for a little while, which I didn't like. And then I, uh, had, I contacted Chalk and Bear and I had a contact there because I, uh, when I was at Ashurst, I had done quite a bit of pro bono work and it was a real, one of my reasons for going into that environment as well. I knew that they had, well, first, first of all, that they would offer flexible work, which they did. And mm. so I worked part-time mostly. Uh, and secondly, they had a pro bono program, which I was very, very interested in. And so I did some really, really, really interesting, very challenging work uh, as part of their pro bono program, mm. including uh, doing some work for Aboriginal clients up in the Northern Territory mm. uh, through the through NAJA. And some of your listeners may be aware of that organisation. So when I when I moved on and decided I wanted a bit of a change, I decided that I would work in the, I'll, I'll describe it as not, not for profit, but more in the social justice area full time rather than just in pro bono. And so I had the good fortune to have a contact at Chalk and Berent. So um, we met and I talked and um, eventually I joined them and that's just about four years ago now, and now I'm a director. So the work I do, it, it's been an amazing change for me. And uh, so now a lot of the work I do is to, to, is rights-based for Aboriginal in, uh, organisations, particularly in land rights. So under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which is New South Wales legislation, I uh, was involved in drafting one of the submissions for the parliamentary inquiry into the Dukung Gorge disaster and tragedy that many of you may know about. So uh, I'm also involved in Aboriginal cultural heritage issues as well. Uh, it's a very, it's a small practice that we have. And mm -hmm. so we all find ourselves doing all sorts of things and enjoying it. And, and it's a challenge, very different to being in a very, very large firm. Uh, what else are we doing? I, I do do some commercial work. I, uh, but primarily my practice is litigation. Well, thank you uh, for giving the overview of your career. I think it's really cool to to see that you have such a wide um, skill set. You've experienced so many different areas of law, um, and in particular at the moment, now that you're working in the social justice space, that's something that I would like to hone in on. Um, in particular because we at UTS are very passionate about social justice and in particular Indigenous rights and our, um, you know, our First Nations people. So 
you know, to give you an idea of the way that we do this at uni is at this point, I think in my degree, I've written three essays that were worth give or take 50% of the mark for that subject that was specific on uh, Indigenous interactions with the law. So, for example, evidence, uh, it was one about how um, you know, Indigenous witnesses are questioned um, and the cultural uh, differences between, you know, your Western ethnocentric um, peoples and, you know, your Indigenous people. So, for example, uh, when questioned, um, in our First Nations people like to pause uh, and sort of give an answer yeah. when confronted with something. Whereas um, our Western ethnocentric sort of language system means that as soon as we're asked a question, we jump in For and sort answer. of give the answer. Yeah, so, and the silence is sort of seen as a almost an admission of guilt in the eyes of, you know, judges and juries who are not particularly educated in this topic. Uh, you know, and that's yeah. just one example. So in saying that, um, do you think laws at the moment, um, you know, are somewhat inadequate in the way that they in in they address indigenous rights, um, or do you think you know they're sufficient? Slash, is there any room for reform um, to better the function of these laws? Well, it is a broad question, Braden, and there are of course we're in. There are so many jurisdictions of our, of law that impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It can depend on, of course, the region they are in and. But if I can describe, for example, an interaction where in one sense the law, which is meant to be remedial, doesn't, it, it's, it is difficult in the sense that it, it can cause delays and costs, but it's a reflection of remedial legislation in both the state and federal system. And that is, as I mentioned, I uh, acting land rights matters and the purpose of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act is remedial and to address the losses suffered by Aboriginal people in New South Wales as a result of dispossession. So it's a mechanism, legislative mechanism for land claims to be made over Crown land. And if the land is determined to be claimable Crown land, it's vested, it's transferred to the local Aboriginal land council for that region. And the transfer of the land is compensation for dispossession. It's a recognition that financial status and um, advantage can often be linked to land. And that land, once it's transferred to the land council, can actually be sold. It's held in freehold title. So it's very different to native title. Mm. And But because of our constitutional system, if there is native title in the area where the land is, uh, the land is situated, that's to be transferred to the, the land council, then it's transferred subject to native title. Uh, now, there are parts of New South Wales where there have been determinations of nat- that there's no native title. There are many parts of New South Wales where there are current land title, um, native title claims on foot before the federal court. So that that is a situation where you've got rubbing up against each other native title rights and rights under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, and that can be dealt with, but that's, I'm not saying that the land, the, the law doesn't serve Aboriginal people well, but it, it, it can give rise to a barrier to a land council dealing with land in a way that any other freehold owner of that land wouldn't have to worry about. So, but that's, I, I of course, that's because there are two competing systems of mm. rights there. And, our, and, of course, our federal system and the constitutional issues that arise there. Mm. As for the criminal justice system, that's not an area that I practice in but any anymore. Uh, but so my experience of that in the context of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is from my own knowledge and gathering my own and interest in, this, in the area. And, and and also discussions that I have with uh, our clients as well. So if I can give an example of an area of law where Aboriginal people are served very poorly, it's in, for example, the domestic violence situation and violence against women where Aboriginal women f- 
find that they are the, by calling the police, they can find themselves to be the ones who are landing in jail. Um, we have in our jail population a vast overrepresentation of Aboriginal people, mm. and within our female jail population, it's exacerbated further in terms of the proportion of Aboriginal women in jail um, compared to their the proportion of the general population. Yeah. And I don't profess to be an expert on that. It's more my observation as a lawyer. It's a matter that we take, we are concerned about within women lawyers, uh, and we are doing our best wherever we can to advocate for changes to that system within within our, our the role that we have and i'll give you an example and that is that uh, we recently put in a submission to the australian law reform commission in relation to judicial bias and um, part, part of the terms of reference did raise diversity on the bench and we uh, applauded the suggestion that there should be more diversity on the bench. And one in, in particular instance that we raised or, or concern that we had is that if, if, for example, there are more Aboriginal women as judges and magistrates, then there perhaps would be uh, more understanding of the situations that Aboriginal women find themselves in when they interact with the with the police or in a domestic violence situation or the criminal justice system. And we would hope that if there was that you know, more diversity on the bench, then less people from diverse backgrounds and in particular Aboriginal people would be in jail. Definitely. So it's, it's a, but, but that's, that's outside my work. That's more something mm. from a profession, my professional um, extracurricular activity, but it is something that we take very, very seriously at the Women Lawyers Association and, and our role uh, and that, that we will advocate wherever we can for marginalised women, not yeah. just the rights of women lawyers, but use use our voice to, to advocate um, for Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander women. Definitely. And, you know, while we're on the topic of Women's Lawyers Association, um, mm. you actually hold a role as a treasurer at this mm. association. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your role and actually the history of this association and the work that it does and it has been doing over time. Mm. The well, association has existed for 70 years and I'm happy to say I have not been a member for 70 years, <laughs> so I'm not that old. But... Uh, and I don't, as I said before, I don't profess to be the historian, <laughs> but uh, certainly the place of women from all backgrounds within our legal profession is uh, and achieve, achieving everything that they can achieve, that they're entitled to achieve and want to achieve. It is still a work in progress and there's there are still issues that we need to advocate for. Um, since I'll probably fast forward a bit, if I may, to my involvement. I first began involved in my involvement with women lawyers when I was actually at Ashurst, Black Dawson Ashurst. And I volunteered to assist on their broader executive committee with various um, working parties and projects that they have. A particular project that I've been involved with for mm, probably five or six years now is assisting with the preparation, the writing and the collection of data and the writing and the production and presentation of our law firm comparison data report, which was the brainchild of uh, one of my esteemed colleagues, Susan Price. And uh, Susan originally created this this notion and wrote the report, uh, which concentrates on publicly available information about private law firms in terms of their policies and practices that promote the working lives of women, their female lawyers, and, and also their progression within their firms. Things like what is their policy in relation to uh, parental leave 
is that shared by men? Do they do a gender pay gap analysis? Uh, what's the proportion of female partners to male partners? Do they have any policies in relation to targets for promotion of women to partnership? So Susan's original idea was to produce a report with data which women who were thinking about engaging in private practice, either moving or going straight to private practice from university if they wish, or however they were progressing into private practice, was that they would be able to look at this data and decide which law firms they might like to go and work for or which they might not like to go and work for. And so the data was obtained from the Financial Review Public uh, Partnership Survey and data from reports, the publicly available data from reports to the WGEA, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. And we have a, a great working relationship with that agency, a very important agency. And, uh, and then other publicly available information. So in the last few years, we've, we've added to the data that we collate, and we've also added some recommendations for law firms to, as to how they might approach progression within the firm and uh, targets for uh, gender equity and partnership. Mm. Um, would you say that, you know, comparing that point in time to now, um, is there less of a barrier for women in law to return to work after pregnancy? Um, for example, are firms more supportive of it? Do they have like a, a blanket program that is that can be applied to all, um, you know, women in law who work for that particular firm? For example, like X amount of weeks of maternity leave, and you're still going to have your position when you get back and all your all your responsibilities. So, mm. what? How do you think that has evolved over the over the years since you first started working in law? I think it's improved enormously. Uh, when I had my first, and she's in her 20s now, but um, I was working in-house and I didn't get any pavement maternity leave. Mm. So I had to pretty much fund it myself. Uh, so I saved up my annual leave and I took, I took uh, so to, to be paid for part of that time, I basically used my annual leave and then I was unpaid, and but... Uh, in once when you say you know was it easy to go back to work? Well, actually, I had to. Mm. So I went back to work when she was four months old. But in a general sense, um, do you think that for for example, women today, mm. um, if you were the same age as you were when you had yeah. your yeah. yeah, it would be significantly yeah. easier. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that it's improved, uh, and and certainly the legal framework is much better Mm. Uh, there's certainly been uh, look the legal framework is better certainly the financial supports are better i think that certainly the government support but uh i think there is a real recognition of the need for financial support and Mm. um so from our in our firm we've had recently two of our employed lawyers take maternity leave or parental leave now, of mm. course it's called, uh, and they've taken their whole year off. Uh, that's not paid for the whole year, but mm. they've been able to spend the whole, take the whole year off. And so that I think that that's facilitated financially by having financial support for that. Mm. Uh, and, and just a recognition that that's, if, if that's what they want to do and that's how they want to express their motherhood and rather than come back to work earlier, that that's it's their decision and uh, we support them in that. There's also, of course, um, the growing acceptance of parental leave being take, taken by men, mm. yeah. which is really important. We really, really push for that. Uh, there, there is resistance, I think, um, the one of the difficulties that remains, it is, it is a difficulty that it remains in private practice and, and potentially elsewhere that you, you, your career does not progress while you're out of it. Mm. That's a real issue. It is a real issue. It's, it remains an issue. There is enormous attrition of female lawyers in their 30s 
Mm. It's when when the stars collide and it can be very, very hard. And unfortunately, that means that even if you do take time out in that period, um, that's when people who stay in the job, uh, they're, pro- they're, they're going to progress and become more senior with a view to becoming partners in a private law firm. So in the private firm setting, that could, it's a very, very, can be a very challenging time if that's when caring responsibilities take over. Mm. Or to, to balance the two, it can be very, very difficult. And I guess, um, you know, we're discussing issues where certain women might have dilemmas of, well, do I want to take time off and have a family? You know, it might be their choice, but this isn't an issue that men may necessarily be faced with in their 30s. They don't have to, you know, sort of take time out and, you know, go through the process of having a kid. So I guess my question would be, how do you think the role of women has changed in law over the last few years? Because we did talk about, um, you know, taking some time off and coming back and that Mm. not being the easiest thing in the world because you know law let's get real it's not easy to ever practice and let alone Mm. coming in and practicing again I can't imagine how difficult that would be because you know you would go from knowing everything to thinking oh I've got this and then getting that sort of possible harsh reality shock as well it is a bit of a reality shock I remember coming back uh, after I'd had some time off and so I started back at Black Dawson and I, ba- I basically had to write a two-line letter. <laughs> it was sort of along the lines of we enclosed by way of service, you know, this report. It was so simple, but I really did spend a lot of time fretting. Have I, is there a typo? Have I said it correctly? Mm-hmm. I really fretted over it. Look, though, and that, that passed with time. Uh, and I think that it, the role of more junior lawyers and lawyers below leadership level, principal level, who are women uh, or have or other other lawyers who have caring responsibilities, because it may not be having children. Um, there are many caring responsibilities or other respons- responsibilities that can take up the time uh, in someone's life outside their, their practice. But if the leadership is diverse or moving towards my, more diversity in, in terms of having more female partners and principals and then and, and also principals from different backgrounds, then they will be more understanding. It, it, you know, you can't be what you can't see. I know that's a cliche, but also it is really, really important and it, and it gets back to what I was saying about having diversity on the bench. Hmm. It gives a level of understanding about what, some, what the employee is going through. So, And I think also as a, a junior employee seeing within the principal, the makeup of the partnership or the principals, that, that there's someone like them and they can feel, yeah, well, look, why shouldn't I do that? I can aspire to that. And, and that's really, really important. But it is important for, in our view, at Women Lawyers, for the care of people, you know, children and other people who require care within a family, that that not fall just to women. Now, that's something for people to work out at home, but whatever supports that are there that an employer can provide and the law can, the law can support or require should be implemented and promoted so that so that the care of individuals who need caring for does not fall primarily to women Mm. yeah i think it should be a shared i hope i've answered your question but that's our philosophical approach and that's what we and it it is a work in progress but um You definitely answered well. Um, I love that you raised the issue about, you know, women going up the ranks. Of, like, of course, this is women who do deserve it and have worked hard enough to do that because in that they've gotten the role that they've worked for, but they also act as a beacon of hope for junior lawyers, like you said, who might not be up to that leadership level yet but can aspire to do so because they've seen people before them do that. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's important to have those uh, 
role models there, but also somebody you can go and talk to, um, either as a mentor or as a, a promoter within a firm in private practice, not just in, in private firms, but in any organisation. It's it, mm. when you in the junior ranks, it is important to know who your promoter can be, like somebody who recognises your your value and your potential, um, recognises how hard you've worked to come where you where you've arrived at, but also where you can go, and and they realise that you're of great benefit to the organisation, whatever organisation that may be. It may be a government agency, it may be a, uh, a bank uh, or private firm, but just to, and it may not just be one promoter, but uh, we, we talk a lot about mentorships and that's really, really important, but also within this framework, and it's not just law, I'm sure, but it is important to, uh, within an organisation, find someone and sometimes they find you because they recognise the talent. They recognise that they they need to be promoting value. They're, they're great staff, um, and uh, that that is a really important relationship in my view. Doesn't mm. happen immediately, not necessarily. It can, but just for lawyers going into practice, it's important to be mindful of who can. Who, who can help you along the way uh, so that your career is progressed yeah. and who, and find who wants to help you. Yeah. There, who, who actually wants to help you, you may not realise it, that there would be people out there who want it within your organisation who actually, you know, they, they employed you, so they mm-hmm. want you there. They, they like mm-hmm. your CV uh, and and they think you, you'll be great for that organisation, so they want you to progress, yeah, and get mm-hmm. to a leadership role eventually. Yeah, and I don't think the importance of mentors can be understated. I think, especially in law, when you have, you know, it's less of a, how do I put this? You're not competing with people inside your firm. You're one big team. Um, And you have that almost like big brother, big sister um, sort of relationship with your, you know, more senior lawyers where you need to learn that practical component of the theory component that you've already learned at uni. And as well as that, not only like, okay, how do I function as a lawyer, but, you know, uh, especially for women, like how do I function as a woman in law? How do I, Mm. what's the best way to take it? And, you know, in in that sense, I think it's really important for those mentors. And I think, you know, the Women Lawyers Association in that sense is really doing good work there to sort of let people know that there is, there is ways. It's not an insurmountable mountain. It's something that can actually be done uh, in a way that is really, you know, effective. Yeah, there are practical steps that can be taken. And I think it's also important to to know, I mean, within our organisation, of course, and on our executive, there are, we've, we've got students, we've got junior lawyers, we've got mid, we've got people like me, we've got people at the bar, all sorts. It's uh, people from very different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And, uh, you know, some people who are born into the law in one sense, like we were discussing earlier, and others <laughs> not. Uh, and we all bring uh, some people, you know, from big firms and what have you. So we all bring our background and our, our whole lives to bear. And we, we like to talk about things and I think mm. it I wouldn't say it's just a female thing it's not but um, mm. it, talking about things and sharing experiences not just in women lawyers but in your firm that you might act, eventually work in or or whichever setting you're working in it is important to communicate and mentorship in, is part of that the really important um, over many many years of practice i can say that when something goes really pear-shaped and wrong generally at the, at the root of the problem is just a breakdown in communication mm. and sometimes that can be because there was a misunderstanding or people weren't in the same place at the same time or something got lost or but sometimes that can be merely because especially if there's a junior practitioner, they 
feel they can't speak to a senior mm-hmm. practitioner about it. They don't want to take up their time. Maybe the door's shut. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to, you know, unless it's open plan, but what have you. <laughs> but to have that fear, oh, I should know this, or maybe I shouldn't, or what do I do? Um, but I don't want to disturb them. Who do I talk about this? Who do I talk to about it? And panic sets in, and that's awful situation to be in. Uh, I'm not suggesting by any means that it would be the junior person's fault if something mm. went wrong there. But um, and and even in my practice, acting for in the past for medical practitioners, a lot of the problems caused by communication breakdowns and. Mm being you know even my as a junior lawyer and in a case where um it's funny because on one view the case was enormous success but on another view there were one or two things that weren't that great and um one in particular aspect of the case which wasn't great that was because i felt i couldn't ask the question of the barrister and not just that, but if you make assumptions. So making assumptions can be dangerous in practice. So take that with you as well. It's always, <laughs> yes. you know, always check unless it's just something that is so obvious or fundamentally, you know. Um, even if you think, for example, you've checked that legislation six months ago and your idea is, well, I know what it says, uh, or a rule in the the UCPR, the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules, um, that, uh, oh, I know what that rule says, always go back and check just Mm -hmm. to be sure Uh, because the words you have in your mind might not be the exact word in in the rule or the legislation and it's always a good idea to double check Mm. and just be absolutely sure. So assumptions can be very dangerous. I class them as breakdowns in communication as well. Mm, yeah, and look, I think any lawyer, well, any good lawyer, would tell you that they don't. They they become a good lawyer when they realise they don't actually know a whole lot about the law. Yeah. And any good lawyer, you know, when they're asked a question that they're a little bit, uh, I don't know about that. They don't give you know a half attempt at an answer. They say, "I've got to go and research." So we we'll get back to you on that. Yeah. So I'll, I, take, I'll take that on notice. Yeah. <laughs> Something that you know. But yes, uh, take t- I'll take that on notice, or uh, which is what I used to do, especially when I started becoming uh, more senior at that large firm that I worked for before I went into in-house practice. That mm-hmm. I would, I would, if a junior lawyer came and spoke to me, I would just say, "Let's find this out together," and we get the rules, and mm-hmm. that's how I would do it. Um, but I, I certainly. And I'm not alone in this, but I do say to junior lawyers and paralegals, you must, you mustn't think that a question is stupid. Coming up, if you can't find an answer, try try and find the answer to the question yourself. But if you can't, just come and see me because there's no such thing as a stupid question. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I really, it's important. I think, as it's, if nothing else, as a risk management tool to be open to someone asking you a question rather than them spending a day, you know, in torture trying <laughs> to answer to a question. At least, you know, they've given it a go, but really a day is too long to be spending yeah. trying to find an answer to a question which might be very quickly answered. But but even more so, those in law, there are there's no one answer as well. Yeah. And you have to make, very often have to make strategic decisions or put forward the different potential answers for your client to be guided as to have for them to make the strategic decisions. And there can be times when you just, and we do this a lot in our practice and I really encourage it that even at the principal level, the director level, we will speak to each other about issues that come up and what, what would you do? I've got this, this, and this, what do you think? Mm. Is that a waste of time? Should I do that? What do you reckon? And that is a really, really important part of legal practice, in my view, effective legal practice, I should say, uh, that just having that collegiate atmosphere. And and I know that in various barristers' practices, it's the same, that they will, even the most senior barrister 
will still want to run something by a colleague and say, I've got this, what do you reckon? Not mm. all law has been decided. It's not all, you know, it, you can even have uh, an old piece of litigation, of legislation that you would come across, Braden, like the Civil Liability Act. And there's, the courts are still interpreting that legislation. Mm. Aboriginal Land Rights Act, 1983, it's still being interpreted. Mm. Nothing is, nothing is, some things, of course, you know, are uh, been to the High Court, but even so, they can, you have cases that have been to the High Court and still it doesn't fully and finally resolve the position. So mm. there's no one answer. It's not, it's not like a mathematical problem where you put in the variables and get an answer. Mm. Yeah. It's a lot more grey. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, yeah. And also there are situations where, yeah, this is, we think, for example, a client has this pathway open to them and let's go and pursue those rights and take this to the the final degree and what have you, but it actually may not be in the client's interests. Mm, maybe not. So that's always, that's also something to, to consider. Probably one other thing that I would mm-hmm. say mm. is that uh, for many years now, women have either equaled or outnumbered men in graduating roles Mm. and i suppose there are many many reasons for that i think women have been encouraged to go to university which is fantastic you know Uh, but certainly graduating classes since i was at university and that's a long time ago and i'm not going to tell you when but have been dominated by women or equal so the the difficulty and the challenges are still there though for women to achieve uh, leadership roles which are commensurate with the number of female lawyers that are graduating so Mm. it is is a work in progress there that we still um, feel that as an an essential part of our charter of women lawyers Mm. so and uh, just supporting and and I have to say we have male members, so it's not an exclusive club mm. <laughs> by any means. Yeah, well, I look around in my classes, and I'd say it's seventy percent girls, thirty percent guys. Yeah. And uh, you know, part of me thinks that might be just because girls are more switched on than boys are. They know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, like we're better at multitasking, for example. Yeah, but that I feel like falls too much into the cliche sort exactly. of area. I just think it's amazing that uh, at least, you know, around the level of my age group uh, and probably, you know, for, as you said, for many years now, um, that it's not a boys club, at least in no. the grassroots level. Of course, you know, you never really know, at least we don't know what it's mm-hmm. like on the inside of at the very top of big law firms, we obviously we have not been exposed. Yeah, well. so it'd be it'll be curious to see, and I hope that over the course, you know, of the next decade or two, you know, as I continue to practice law, that you know we will approach that um, 50-50 mark from the top to the bottom of the firm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and then even if it gets to a point where, you know, it continues to be more female grads um, coming from university, you might even find that. There's more, um, you know, women who are in positions of power at, at firms purely because there's more women lawyers, um, you know, in general. And that is not something that is bad in any way. That's a, That would be a fantastic achievement to see women outnumber men because then you know it's um, truly merit-based if you just look at the numbers. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, but- I understand exactly what you're saying there, Braden. It's, uh, it, it is very odd to think that you could have a graduating, say, say an intake of graduates into a, a law firm and it's 50-50, but by, over the years, uh, unfortunately, with attrition. Now, uh, that, that could be men decide they don't want to, that they want to go on and do something else or there are all sorts of different factors that apply mm. but the numbers speak for themselves i do think that within the legal profession uh at particularly well-resourced law firms whether whether they be mid-tier small boutique large there there is a real recognition by partners that they're 
they sh- that all of their young lawyers who join them are wonderful lawyers and deserving and uh, why aren't those numbers and, and the mix of a graduate intake, why is that not being reflected in partnerships? So, mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for Season 3, Episode 6 of The Var, Louise. We hope you've had a good time today. Well, thank you to you both. And I wish you all the best in your future studies and your careers and also to your listeners. Um, I I hope that I've given one or two pearls of wisdom, but uh, I'm sure that you're all very clever as well <laughs> and, and have great futures ahead in however you choose to practice law or not to apply your legal knowledge there are so many ways so thank you very much for having me thank you that thanks for coming message. on yeah yeah i uh, i learned a lot just by talking to you today <laughs> um <laughs> i hope so after all my years of practice <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much again to our dear listeners for tuning in this week i've been Braden. i've been perina and we'll see you next week for the happiest happy hour see ya